Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. April 4th was World Rat Day, and there are lots of reasons why rats have a day just for them. So let's learn about rats, shall we? Day for everything. Okay. Which statement, Peter, about rats is false? Rats can reproduce every three weeks. There are 56 known species of rats. The Sumatran bamboo rat can weigh up to 8.8 pounds. Rats are solitary animals. Oh, I think rats are solitary animals. That would be false. That is correct. Rats are very social animals and live in communities in which they groom each other, sleep together, and play together. Rats enjoy and need the company of other rats. In fact, not only are rats extremely social, but they are very affectionate animals. Rats take care of injured and sick rats in their group. Also, domestic pet rats love being and interacting with humans too. And listen to this, Peter. Without companionship, rats tend to become lonely and depressed. It's been shown that rats will get depressed they don't eat well and get very nervous when alone. Yeah. So rats live in family groups in the wild, and domesticated rats are no different. So if you're planning to get a pet rat, it's best to get them in pairs or more. More is better. So when one dies, the other's not alone. <laughs> and just like humans and other animals, when one family member dies, they'll go through a mourning process. Yeah. Also, when a rat is sick or injured, other rats will look after them until they are better. Domesticated pet rats come to love their human companion and will answer to their name. If you're interested in having a pet rat, get more than one, more is better, and always adopt from a rescue and not from a breeder. You've heard that before. Rats are also very playful animals. They like to run, jump, and play fight. Domesticated pet rats will often play wrestle with their owner's hand. And get this, Peter, it's been shown that rats laugh. Yeah, this I remember is that. Oh, you do? Yeah. This is interesting. Since rats communicate with each other at higher frequency than us, at about 50 kilohertz or higher, we can only hear their laughter by using a bat detector device. Estonian neuroscientist Jacques Pengseth did just that in his paper, Behavioral Brain Research, over a period of many years, spent tickling rats. And he found out that rats are particularly ticklish in their nape area. That's the back of the neck. And they will seek out the human hands they know will tickle them. And that's the rats who laugh the most, who were also the most playful. And according to this article in the online saga, UK Magazine, 12 Facts About Rats You Need to Know, this behavioral brain researcher, Jock, Pengsip also found that rats would stop laughing when conditions change, such as bright lights coming on or the smell of a cat approaching. So far, the only other non-human animals who've been proven to laugh are primates, such as chimpanzees, and there's research to suggest dogs and dolphins both perform something akin to laughter, too. So we can't hear the communication amongst the rats, but of course we can hear the scampering and scurrying and squeaky noises rats tend to make. Peter, true or false? Wait, wait a second. I'm just taking all that in. (laughs) Like the facts you need to know about rats. That was an interesting title. Did I go too fast? No, you didn't go too fast. I'm just like this whole world of ratty 
uh, trivia, ratty facts. Yeah. I'm just trying to absorb it all. That's all. And then they're social and compassionate and and sweet and they they laugh. I know. Yeah, okay. All right. Okay. Go ahead. You got it all in now? I'm just adapting. Go ahead. True or false? There are some countries that worship rats. Oh, yes. That's true. Do you know where? I'm going to say, let's see, wasn't there uh, uh, Thailand or uh, Indonesia? Um, Northern India. Oh, that's... There's a temple in Northern India where rats are worshipped, just outside the city of Bikaneer. This very famous Hindu temple is called the Karni Mata Temple, or the Rat Temple. And it's where pilgrims go to pray to the saint and goddess Karni Mata. But rats are the other deities housed at this temple. And there are around 25,000 rats scurrying all around the temple, and they, the rats, are worshipped. It's believed these rats are the reincarnated souls of local family of storytellers, and they were reborn through a power of the rat goddess called Karnimata. These rats are treated as sacred and considered to be holy. And many people travel great distances to pay their respects. Of course, the temple is also a tourist attraction from visitors across the world. And they all get there and say, I can't believe this place exists. Yes, they do. You have to see the videos. And I'm going to get to that. One of the rules there in order to go into the temple is that you must remove your shoes to walk inside. And this is to prevent people from accidentally stepping on and hurting or crushing the rats. And you have to watch your step because if you check out any of these videos online, and there are a few great seven, 10 minute educational type videos depicting the temple, and you could see rats just running around everywhere. And of course you can imagine how much excrement can be produced by 25,000 or so rats, but apparently that's swept up continuously. And you see people or pilgrims or visitors holding and loving and feeding the rats. Yeah. You also see children sitting amongst the rats and hand feeding them, and the rats are crawling on, their, on the kids and on their laps and legs. And the priests and pilgrims feed the rats grain and milk and whatever else the rats want to eat there. The priests and members of his group are devoted to serving the rats. And again, they believe strongly in reincarnation and that these rats are family members. So you see the priests eat and drink with the rats. On one of the online videos, you can see someone in the kitchen in the in the temple cooking food and rats nibbling on the fresh food that is also shared with the human oh, members. Yeah, that's too much. Another clip showed like 20 or 30 rats lined up all around and drinking some fresh milk in a circular large pan on the floor. And you see a pilgrim reach down with his cupped hand and get a handful of milk and drinks it. The same milk as the rats are drinking. Anyway, very interesting and definitely encourage listeners to YouTube this. National Geographic also puts out like a five-minute YouTube on this temple. It explains how this became the temple of rats and the history behind it. So what do you think about that? Uh, Like I said, just sort of taking it all in. Don't rats carry certain, like, microbes and illnesses and things that are infectious, like hantavirus or some other things, I would be worried getting something transmitted or being nibbled on. Well, we're going to talk about possible bacteria and viruses that rats might carry, but these people and the visitors there um, are not worried about that. And reportedly, there's no cases in the surrounding area of any sort of infections to humans transmitted by the rats. Okay. So I I don't know. I'm still worried. You say you would not visit the rat temple? 
I would visit. I would visit. You just wouldn't drink from the same milk bowl as they <laughs> That's are. That's a bridge too far. Okay. Peter, true or false? Rats have excellent memories. That is true. True. They can remember a human face and recognize people they've seen before. If you have a rat as a pet, it can learn its name and respond when you call to it. Rats also don't get lost because they are so good at remembering their way around. Once they learn a navigation route, they won't forget it. True or false? Rats can be trained in a similar way to dogs. It's true, true. That's right. Like dogs, they are very food-oriented, so they will learn by enticing them with a little treat. And as we talked about, they're also very sociable, so they like the interaction they get from doing the activities, such as fetching and jumping and coming when called. True or false, rats are extremely dirty, unclean animals. Oh, you dirty rat. Uh, That is going to be false. False is correct. Rats spend several hours a day cleaning, grooming themselves, and cleaning their group members. Yeah. Cleaning others is a social bonding experience for rats, and rats clean themselves so much that they are said to be cleaner than dogs and cats. What is the purpose of a rat's tail? A, the tail does not have a purpose. B, like a lizard, the tail can break off as a self-defense mechanism. C, rats' tails help them to balance, communicate, and regulate their body temperature. D, a rat tail is used for the purpose of mating. The bigger the tail, the better. Wow, the bigger the... Okay. Wow. Is it one of those? One of those. I'm going to go with C. C is correct. Rats' tails help them to balance communicate, and regulate their body temperatures. And you know the tail must work well for balance because they're excellent climbers. They can climb up walls. So you wrote those alternative answers? Very clever. Thank you. (laughs) The rat is the first in the 12-year cycle of the Chinese zodiac. And the rat is one of the most clever and gifted animals out of the 12 zodiac signs of the Chinese horoscope. True or false? Uh, I'm going to say true. True is correct. People born within these years are said to have been born in the year of the rat. 1912, 1924, 1936, 1948, 1960, 1972, 1984, 1996, 2008, and 2020. Yeah. People born in the year of the rat, so one of these years I just said, are thought to possess characteristics which are associated with rats, namely creativity, intelligence, honesty, ambition, and generosity. Peter, true or false? The rat's sense of smell is better than the sense of smell of dogs. Oh boy, I'm going to say that's true. True. Wow. Rats don't see very well, but their other senses are pretty darn good. And Peter, as you know, giant African pouch rats are used to help in clearing out landmines in Cambodia and Zimbabwe. And we've talked about this on the show before. The rats themselves are too small to set off the landmines, but they detect where the explosives are buried so they can be detonated safely. Yes, quite amazing. Also, rats can effectively sniff out tuberculosis and people with HIV and reportedly much more efficiently than microscopic tests. Furthermore, in the Netherlands, police have trained rats to sniff out drugs, explosives, and counterfeit cigarettes. Which American city has the most rats? L.A., New York, Houston, Chicago. Pre or post pandemic is the yeah, question. That's a good question. You know, because I heard, I think we talked about the rats coming out in New York City. 
I'm going to say there are more rats in Chicago than anybody. Anywhere. You're right. And you're right. We did talk about after the pandemic, um, the rats in New York City just took over. Right. The other rats. <laughs> According to Pest Control Service Orkin, Chicago is being called the ratty city in the United States for six consecutive years in a row. That is distinction. <laughs> and Orkin, they should know. Right. Yeah. Windiest, rattiest city. Yeah, that's good. Okay, don't go away. More rat fun facts right after the break. Welcome back to Animals Today. April 4th was World Rat Day, so we're having lots of fun talking about rats. Unfortunately, Peter, a history of bad press from the bubonic plague and the Black Death is associated with rats. However, World Rat Day is here to bust these old myths and misconceptions. Like, Peter, are rats to blame for the bubonic plague? Oh, I'm going to say yes. No. Okay, teach me. Okay. Rats have long been blamed for spreading the Black Death. So Black Death is the term that describes the global epidemic of the bubonic plague that struck Europe and Asia in the mid-1300s. So the plague was caused by the bacterium Yersinia pestis. pestis. Very good. And researchers thought the bacterium would infect fleas on rats, and when the rats died, the fleas would jump to humans, infecting them. Right. And it's been speculated that the fleas on rats are responsible for the estimated 25 million people who died from the plague between 1347 and 1351. But studies have come out in the last few years that suggest that rats weren't the main carriers of fleas and lice that spread the plague. It was humans. Oh. Fleas and ticks on humans were shown to be the most accurate model for explaining the spread of the disease. According to History.com, it's not clear where the belief that rats spread the plague come from in the first place. After all, the researchers write that, quote, there's little historical and archaeological support for such a claim. For example, if rats really were a main cause of the plague, there would be more archaeological evidence of dead rats. So most people, like you, I would guess, Peter, still believe that the rats are to blame for the widespread outbreak of the plague. Instead, the disease may have spread from person to person through fleas and lice and human feeding parasites. Yeah. Wow. Thank now, you. I'm not saying that rats cannot spread diseases to humans. All wild rodents carry bacteria and viruses that cause infections in people. Which of the following film characters is a rat? Remy, Ben, Socrates... Or all of the above? Oh, okay. Hmm. Well, I, I believe that Remy was a rat from, uh, and I do think Ben, Michael Jackson's Ben. And I don't know who Socrates is. That's probably more modern animated film. Well, you did pretty good, Peter. Disney's 2007 movie Ratatouille yeah. followed a rat named Remy as he became a chef in Paris. The 1970s gave birth to two rat movies, Willard, in which a boy becomes friends with a rat named Socrates and starts training rats, and its sequel, Ben, about a boy befriending one of the rats trained by Willard. It featured a theme song by Michael Jackson. Good, Peter. Yeah. 
I don't remember Willard so well. No, I don't think I saw it. Okay. But I'm surprised your patients wouldn't talk to you about it, your little kids. Yeah, well, you know, from the, they don't watch much from the 70s. What is the word for a group of rats? Oh. A mischief? Yeah. A school? A murder? Or a flock? I'm going to say I don't know this, a mischief. That's correct. Yeah. What do you call a fear of mice and rats? Mm. Mustophobia, rodentophobia, murdophobia. <laughs> rodentophobia sounds too easy to believe, but I'll go with that one. It's musophobia. <laughs> Moose? Spell that. I think it's musophobia. Musophobia. M U S O P H O B I A. Wow. The word comes from M U S, moose. Which is like mouse. Which is mouse, in right. German. In Latin, Latin and Greek. Latin. Okay. Yeah, yeah, okay. exactly. Peter, how do you tell the difference between a rat and a mouse? Yeah, I was hoping you'd get to this at some point. Okay, how do you tell a difference? Name like if three, three okay. characteristics. Oh, rat. Okay, mice are smaller? Yes. Okay. Mice have, let's see, something about their whiskers or their... How about their head? Mice have a smaller head. Well, I don't know about smaller. The snout of a mouse is more triangular, and the snout of a rat is more blunt. Okay. Okay. But maybe it's smaller. Well, okay. Okay, how about the tail? Tail, rat, mouse. Uh, the mouse has a hairy, skinny tail. That's pretty good. Mouse have long, uh-huh. thin, hairy tails. They also have large, floppy ears, which oh. is different than the, the uh, rat. Mm. And the rat's tail is usually hairless. Mm. What is the smallest size hole a rat can fit through? The size of a small marble? The size of a quarter? The size of a golf ball? Or the size of an egg? Oh, boy. I'm going to say quarter size. Quarter is correct. Quarter size. That's, so they really got to deform themselves to squeeze through. Like you see those videos of like octopi and how they're able to get through little spaces? I they know. Really, I know. It's really bizarre. Well, we've seen well, we've seen mice go like under a closed door before. Well, yeah, that's, like that's true. Three millimeters that's high. That's true. That's yeah, they're clever. True or false? Domestic rats bite often and without provocation. I'm going to say false. False is yeah. correct. Chocolate is just as toxic to rats as it is um, to dogs. Oh, true or false? Oh, oh, you know, I never heard that because I'm not into the pet rat. But let's see. I'm going to say false. It's false. Yeah. The Otherwise, top... they'd be putting chocolate in the rat, cave, yeah. rat traps. Yeah. That's right. But there are foods that are toxic to rats. So I'm actually scared to say, because now I'm going to give people idea what to put in mm. rat traps. But the skin and seeds of avocado and green bananas and raw sweet potatoes, a lot more. There's a lot of foods that are toxic to rats. But going back to the chocolate, the toxin in chocolate that can kill dogs is called theobromine. Does not affect rats. Yeah, good. Rat four feet yes. has four toes. Yeah, but how many toes are on the hind feet? Three, four, or five? I'm gonna say three. Five. I'm gonna say five. <laughs> I was making little. I see you making little rat foot things with my fingers. Three looked good. Lori, I don't know if I ever told you this. I have a little rat story you for you. You have a rat from, story? Yes, from pre-marriage days. Okay. I was in college, 
And I uh, spent a summer up there studying in Massachusetts. It was really hot. I had no money, had no air conditioning in my apartment. And it was just brutal for a stretch there. And uh, one of my professors from the psychology department, okay, uh, he gave me a key to the rat lab, which was nice and cool, right? Really one of the rare air conditioned places I could find. And he allowed me to just uh, go in there, not bother anybody. And there was a little little room with a desk and I could go there and do my, do my studies during the day in the rat lab. And he was just being nice. He just gave me a place to go. And it was sort of, uh, it was useful. The odor was, you have to get used to it. You know, it's hard to concentrate when you have the uh, lab, rat lab odor, but I got used to it, I guess. Did you sleep with the rats? Did not sleep with there the rats. There was no mattress on the floor there I didn't for have you? anything to do with the rats, really. I just sort of uh, walked in and out. So, but there's my rat encounter. Hmm, your psychology professor. I wonder what the real reason is he allowed you to study in the rat lab. Well, Peter, you know what I would do if someone allowed me access to the rat lab, right? Yeah, I can guess. Free all the rats. Free all the rats. Welcome back to Animals Today. This is from Live Science. Some neurobiologist and her dog Kunkun recently moved from Mexico to Budapest, Hungary, and decided she wanted to know whether dogs are capable of distinguishing between language spoken by humans. The researcher states, we noticed, this is when she moved from Mexico to Hungary, we noticed that the people in Budapest were very friendly with dogs and often approached Kunkun and talked to him. Kunkun usually pays a lot of attention to people, so I wondered whether he noticed that people in Budapest speak a different language. Before I had only talked to my pet dog in Spanish, so I was wondering whether Kunkun noticed that people in Budapest spoke a different language, Hungarian. Yeah. The study seems so silly to me, Peter. Is it not obvious that dogs would be able to distinguish a different language? You say to our dogs, let's go for a walk, or the word dinner, or treat, or cookie, or let's play with your toy or ball. They know those words. They know what you're talking about. But if you say the same thing in Spanish, what's, what's dinner for Spanish? Comida. <laughs> so you say comida to our dogs. They wouldn't know what you're talking about. So, of course, they can distinguish language, right? <laughs> I, don't, I don't see any groundbreaking things here. But anyway, let's see how this researcher tortured the dog so she can get what she wanted published. So she used 18 dogs, and all the dogs had been exposed to either the Spanish language or Hungarian, depending on their owners and families. So the dogs were only familiar with one or the other language. The 18 dogs were trained to lie still in an MRI machine so their brains can be scanned. And while they're being scanned, three different recordings were played. A Spanish reading from the children's book, The Little Prince, a Hungarian reading from the same book, and then some human noises mm. that didn't resemble any normal speech. Here are the results, which again, to me, I don't see anything worthy of research here. But you'll let me know. First, the dogs were able to distinguish between speech and non-speech. If we talk gibberish to our dogs, they probably look at us and think, what the hell are we trying to say to them? They know the difference between speech and non-speech, right? The researchers say 
dog brains, like human brains, can distinguish between speech and non-speech. Also, the results show that dogs react differently to familiar and unfamiliar languages. The researcher says, this is the first study showing that a non-human brain can differentiate between two languages, Hungarian and Spanish. Also, older dogs appear to be more adept at distinguishing between a familiar and an unfamiliar language. He says, I think that the main reason the older dogs are better at differentiating language is the amount of exposure to the language. Older dogs have had more opportunities to listen to humans while they talk. I don't know, this just seems so obvious to me. He goes on, each language is characterized by a variety of auditory regularities. Our findings suggest that during their lives with humans, dogs pick up on the auditory regularities of language they are exposed to. Live Science says the researcher was, quote, a little surprised by the study's findings, but he also thinks that many people underestimate how sharp our canine friends can be. I don't know about that. He says, my experience with dogs has shown me that they are constantly paying attention to their social world and everything that happens around them. I think dogs know more about us than we imagine. So that's it. Well, here's one more quote from the researcher. This study showed for the first time ever that a non-human brain can distinguish between two languages. Still, we do not know whether this capacity is dog's specialty or general among non-human species. Indeed, it is possible that the brain changes from the tens of thousands of years that dogs have been living with humans have made them better language listeners. But this is not necessarily the case, he said. And here's another article, Peter, talking about the study. And this, listen how it begins. In a startling discovery, scientists found that dogs respond differently to familiar and unfamiliar human languages, revealing that the capacity to learn about the regularities of a language is not uniquely human. Startling discovery. <laughs> You're delivering this beautifully. <laughs> <laughs> Peter, what am I missing here? No, no, no. You're not missing anything there. This was just a waste of our four minutes of Animals Today Radio? No, no, it was good. Okay. Right, good. It was fascinating to hear about what people are spending their lives and their time with, but I tend to agree with you. It's like, why? I wonder if this is one of these instances where, you know, you have a new instrument, in this case, functional MRI, and then you just sort of throw things at it or sort of devise experiments or things to do you know, in order to publish it and then sort of try to backfill. This is why we did this and this is why it's important. But it's not it's not the question that's, you know, leading the science. Oh, that's a good know? point. So we've got this new toy. What can we do with it? Right. I wonder if it fits into that sort of thing. That's, you know? that's a great analysis of well, it. I okay. think that's what it is. But it's, everyone wants, to, you know, it's, the conclusions are really good. It could be this, but it definitely could be that. And it's like it's. Like and also, that. the not only non-human animals yeah, that yeah. could. No, that's not. A, there's other animals that can distinguish between languages, right? We need bigger and smaller and faster MRIs <laughs> okay. right away. Okay, let me move on to a more interesting study. So we all know that having a pet is associated with various health benefits, like lowering blood pressure, lowering our cholesterol, lowering our stress level and loneliness etc, etc. We talk about this all the time. Last week on the show, the question was raised, is sleeping with your pet, sharing your bed with your pet, is that disruptive to your sleep? Right. Well, a lot of surveys have been done on this topic, and the answer is... What's your favorite answer, Peter? <laughs> it depends. It depends, exactly. It depends. Back in 2015 at the Center for Sleep Medicine at the Mayo Clinic in Arizona, among pet owners surveyed at the sleep clinic, more than half said pets sleep in their bedroom. 
and one in five describe their animals as disruptive, but two in five perceive the pets as unobtrusive or even beneficial to sleep. Among the people who say the animals were disruptive to their sleep, problematic animal-related disturbances they reported included wandering, snoring, voiding needs, whimpering, and seizures. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Among the people who described the animals as beneficial in the bedroom, they say their animals provided comfort and companionship or served as bed warmers. <laughs> people sleeping alone, whether they were single or had a partner who wasn't always there at night, more often spoke of pets as beneficial evening companions. Breed size, bedroom size, and bed size could all contribute to how people and pets interact at night and how well people sleep, said Navy Captain Dr. Mart Stevens of the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences in Bethesda, Maryland. That makes sense to me, Peter. It might be very hard to get a good night's sleep if you have three large dogs on a single bed with you, right? Alan McConnell, a psychology researcher at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio, said, People's perception that pets cause disruptive sleep is not great evidence that they do cause sleep disruption. Self-reported beliefs about pets being the cause of people's sleep difficulties is pretty limited without a more comprehensive experimental study design. I agree with that last statement, that people can report whatever they want, but right. until you really study it, so... Absolutely. But, but this is interesting. Listen to this. This is from sleepadvisor.org. The title of this piece is called The Pros and Cons of Sleeping with Pets in Your Bed. And this is under the section called Pets and Sleep, What Does the Science Say? Louise Cron, MD of the Mayo Clinic says, we found that many people actually find comfort and a sense of security from sleeping with their pets. The University of Alberta found that for patients with chronic pain, sleeping with their dog helps regulate their sleep patterns by lowering their stress, exposing them to the sun early in the morning when they take them out and providing comfort when they are in pain. According to a Mayo Clinic study, adults who slept with a pet animal in the room achieved an above satisfactory sleep efficiency percentage, meaning they spent even more time asleep throughout the night than necessary to receive the important benefits. For those who slept with their cat or dog in their bed with them, the number was a little lower but still satisfactory. When it comes to your relationship with your pet, allowing them to sleep with you may strengthen your bond. A study in Hungary shows that dogs feel an attachment to their owners, similar to the way a child feels toward their parents. In some dogs, separation, even for the night, may cause anxiety. When you allow them into your bedroom, in your bed, they may rest better knowing you're nearby. One study at the Mayo Clinic found that the results of sleeping with the pet may vary depending on the owner and how well-behaved an animal is. A calm, purring cat or a well-behaved dog may provide a comforting presence while others may keep you up. I mean, that's probably the bottom line, right, Peter? It just depends on you, your pet, how many animals there are in your bed with you, etc. Okay, this is a good tip. Again, this is from Sleep Advisor. For small dogs and kittens who are still growing, a fall off of a high bed or being rolled over in their sleep could be enough to break a bone or possibly suffocate them. Additionally, just like animals can get you sick, you can pass along viruses to them too. While it may be difficult to say no to your cuddly puppy, it could be the best thing for them in the end, especially if you have the sniffles, or if you think you're going to roll on them and crush them, or if they might fall off the bed and hurt themselves. Another perspective According to the American Kennel Club, separation anxiety is one of the leading reasons owners get rid of their animals. 
If you sleep with them from a young age, you could help them develop this troublesome issue. To make the most of your relationship, crate training your young animal could be the best thing for them, even if it means you can't snuggle at night. Now, ready for this? This is the best one, Peter. Okay. A study found that women report better sleep when they share their bed with a dog. Animal behaviorist Dr. Christy Hoffman and her team of researchers sought to explore the impacts that pets have on human sleep quality. So they surveyed 962 adult women and found that 55% of participants shared their beds with at least one dog and 31% shared their bed with at least one cat. In addition, 57% of respondents shared their beds with a human partner. Dr. Hoffman states, we found that women commonly rate dogs as better bed partners than cats and human partners and report that their dogs enhance their sleep quality. I think that could be very true. They found that women who share their beds with a dog reported better, more restful sleep. They also said that their dogs were less disruptive than their human partners and were associated with a stronger feeling of comfort and security. One of the reasons to explain these results was that Dogs are thought to be more accommodating to their human's sleep patterns. That makes sense, I guess. If you go to bed and wake up at a different time than your spouse, that can be quite disruptive, whereas your dog accommodates to your sleep schedule. Participants report that bed-sleeping cats are just as disruptive as human partners and were associated with weaker feelings of comfort and security than both dog and human partners. She says she hopes to research whether men's sleep is affected by pets in the same way as women's. How do you like them apples? <laughs> it's, it's a mess, this field, isn't it? <laughs> yes, like that's, that's my make, point. You can make anything you want of this. I know. So, uh, okay, it depends, I guess. Still holds. <laughs> I'll right. stick with that, okay? Okay. Okay. But still the Mayo, want... And also the Mayo Clinic seems very interested in... They do studies almost every year on this, I yeah. know. Okay, well... You still want to sleep with the dogs and cats in our bed? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, me too. Okay. Okay, don't go away. More with the animals today, right after the break. Welcome back. So, the disease rabies yes. is pretty uncommon in the United States. Last year, five people died from rabies, and that was actually more than it has been in uh, previous years. Four of them, it was determined, were due to bats, and one from a dog, actually. You know, those are pretty uncommon. The case of the patient bitten by a dog, that actually occurred in the Philippines before he returned to the United States, uh, where he passed away. Folks who were in direct contact with rabid bats, it brings up an interesting question, and that is frequently people who are bitten by bats don't realize that they have been bitten because they can be asleep or the bites can be extremely small and not noticed. So the rule of thumb, as illustrated by this case I'm about to tell you, is that if you live among bats, like they discover a roost in your home, or if you wake up and there's a bat in your room, you need to assume that you have been exposed and bitten and that the saliva is infected and that you are 
in trouble. That's now, so you, interesting yeah. that you're saying that because I just read something the other day when I knew you were bringing this case up about the rabies. Yeah. The CDC does recommend that if you find that you were sleeping with a bat somehow, then they automatically suggest you get the rabies vaccination, assuming you were just bitten by a bat and you don't know it. Right. You have to assume, and they want to, in that case, give you what they call PEP, the post-exposure prophylaxis. Yes. Is that right? Yes. So that is the immunoglobulin plus the series of four vaccines, I think, right. that you get, right? If, however, you're able to capture the lone bat and then they test it and show that it does not have rabies, then you can avoid that. But you may not want to avoid that. Because you may not want to capture the bat, right? Well, but the other reason is that you just might not want the treatment. And yeah. that happened to this elderly guy who's actually in his 80s, who's from Illinois. He awoke to find a bat on his neck and he was offered the series and he declined it. And he died that horrible death that people wow. with rabies die. You know, it's a terrible progressive yes. thing. And once your symptoms start, it's unrelenting and you're dead within uh, two weeks. And the, you know, PEP is not as terrible as it used to be in the bad old days. So it's rare. It still happens though. And, and uh, not so much in, in dogs. We've pretty much eradicated, right? The rabid dog problem in our country, which is wonderful. So Lori, you like bats? You find them cute and mysterious and warm and fuzzy? I love all animals. Yes, yes okay. But that's a really incredible story. Yeah. I mean, you wake up with a bat on your neck. Yeah. Yeah, I guess you just assume he bit you and you don't know it. Yeah. But... Was it really a bat? Was it really <laughs> a bat? Maybe it was a bird. I remember... As a kid, my parents would take me and my siblings on camping trips. And I remember on one of these trips, we were joined by other campers. And one evening, we saw many bats flying about. And this one woman, fellow camper, became hysterical. And especially, she had this fear related to the bats, not about contracting rabies, but worried the bats would fly and get tangled in her hair. So she ran into her tent and wrapped a scarf around her head. And that's what she would do every night on this trip. And you can't ask me, Peter, where, where I was or anything else about this camping trip, because I don't remember. The only thing I remember is that this woman who tried to convince all of us and freaking everyone out, especially the women with long hair, that they should be worried that a bat would get tangled in our hair. Yeah. Peter, remember all the bats that would appear at dusk when we were living in Palm Springs? Yeah. yeah. There'd be not just an occasional bat, but dozens flying above us. They didn't? they didn't seem interested in me, but no, they I was didn't. interested in going into the house whenever that happened. Yeah, so I know I you were. I wasn't really comfortable out. So there are a lot of misconceptions about rabies. The rabies virus can infect any mammal. The vast majority of rabies cases reported to the CDC each year occur in wild animals like bats, raccoons, skunks, foxes, although any mammal can get rabies, even people. And one big myth is that the rabies in dogs and cats is common. And as you pointed out, it's not. We do not see rabies often in dogs and cats in the United States. And we don't see a lot of it because of public health efforts that began in the 1940s. And that was largely through vaccination programs. So it's extremely rare to encounter rabies in a dog or a cat or any domestic animal. And rabies is even more rare in people. But the interesting thing is the rabies virus has not gone away after thousands of years, so it's still a risk. So efforts to control it still continues. So 
Rabies is a viral disease, and it's most often transmitted through a bite of a rabid animal. So the virus is passed through the saliva from a bite from a rabid animal. And the rabies virus infects the central nervous system, as you mentioned, ultimately causing disease in the brain and progressive neurological problems and invariably death. Peter, I read that rabies has the highest mortality rate, 99.9% yeah, yeah. of any disease on earth. So the key is to get treated right away if you think there's any chance of you being bitten by an animal that has rabies. How do you know if an animal has rabies? Okay. Uh, it is acting aggressively. Yeah. Well, no. you, the answer is, okay. the correct answer is, you don't know. Okay. What you were about to say could be another misconception. People think that all rabid animals are foaming at the mouth and active aggressively, but you really don't know if an animal's rabid just by looking at it. I read that many wild animals who have rabies actually act shy or timid. And that's not the way wild animals normally act. So that's when you want to steer away from them. So what do you do if you get bitten by an animal? Because there's really no way to know if the animal that bit you is rabid. And by the way, you can't just wait it out and take your time and see if you develop symptoms. Right. Because if you're bitten by a rabid animal, there are no symptoms at first. Rabies can lay dormant in your body for like one to three months. This is what they call the incubation period. Symptoms start to appear once the virus travels through your central nervous system and hits your brain. So you might get a fever, but then you start to get these central nervous system symptoms like anxiety, hyperactivity, being easily agitated, inability to sleep. Sounds like us <laughs> and everyone you know, right? But you might also be confused. You can start to hallucinate. You might salivate more than usual. You might develop a paralysis. You might have difficulty swallowing and then eventually coma, heart or lung failure and death. So let's go back to what do you do if you're bitten by a wild animal or say you're bitten by a domestic animal, a dog who you know is not vaccinated against the rabies virus or a dog who you don't know his or her vaccination status. Then your doctor, or say a typical emergency room, would likely treat you to potentially prevent a rabies infection. And that treatment is the rabies vaccine, which you talked about. The important thing to know here is the vaccine is always successful if it's given immediately after exposure to the rabies virus. And like you said, it's called post-exposure rabies vaccination. You'll get one dose of this fast-acting rabies immune globulin, and then you get a series of vaccine shots over the next several days. And that is a precaution that I think any ER in the country would take if someone comes in with a bite from an animal that could be carrying rabies. And the reason there's so much caution is that there's not much you can do if you contract the rabies virus and you get rabies. It's almost universally fatal. So the treatment is prevention, essentially. I feel very agitated. Hard time sleeping, yes. irritability, yes. hyperactivity. Too many cats in the bed. <laughs> You're foaming at the mouth, Peter. Okay, well, thank you for tuning in to Animals Today. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner, encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other being sharing our planet, the animals. Mm -hmm.